0: of these services, these Christmas Eve afternoon, evening services, and we designed them especially to be very contemplative, very meditative, very quiet. It's really, really easy any time of the year, but especially this time of the year, to get really, really distracted with all of the busyness of Christmas, all of the responsibilities that all of us have, and things to do and carry off that all of us have, plans and family gatherings, and all of the things, as well as all of the festivities and and all of the sort of jubilant moods that's going on in the world around us right now in terms of all of the Christmas stuff, it's really easy to get distracted by that. It's really easy to get distracted by all of the normal concerns of life. And so we wanted to plan a time when we could come together and focus quietly without a, a, a whole lot of fanfare, without a whole lot of production. Uh, just to quietly come and sing together and focus on the words that we're we're meditating on and singing uh, praises to God through and focusing on God's word together and what Christmas is really all about so that we can focus ultimately on Christ together because he is why we celebrate and he is why we have life. And so we, we designed the service to do that, to function in that way, to be a time where we can focus without a whole lot of distraction because it is challenging for us isn't it part of it's because it's normal and natural when there's a lot going on to get distracted and part of it honestly is because of how we are in our humanness and in our fallenness we are prone to distraction we are prone to putting the focus on things and prioritizing things in ways that don't bring full honor and glory and exaltation to our God and to Jesus Christ and of course Paul calls that in Romans chapter 1 a propensity to worship the creation instead of the creator. To care more about the stuff all around us and the things that are going on in our lives than we care and pay homage to our God himself and worship him. That's intrinsic to the human sinful nature. The Bible calls it idolatry and then juxtaposed against that idolatry and the foolishness of it. And it is foolishness, isn't it? isn't it? The prophets call it out. The psalmists call it out. How foolish it is. And in ancient times, they literally would make these images. They would, they would carve idols of stone or idols of wood out of, out of materials like that and then carve eyes into them even though they couldn't see and carve ears onto them even though they couldn't hear. And then they had to, Isaiah mocks them, they had to pick these idols up because they thought that they represented some gods out there that were going to give them help that we're gonna provide for them. But, but then they had to pick these idols up that they made with their own hands. And they had to put it on a cart or haul it around in order for it to do anything because it can't move on its own, let alone do you any good, let alone help you. And juxtaposed against that, of course, is the living God of this universe who made us, who carries us, who gives us life, and who blesses us from his heavenly throne. And so tonight, what we want to do is focus on that juxtaposition. We want to focus on the vanity of idolatry and the futility of putting our hope in anything and anyone other than, more than, except God and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who is the only basis of hope and the only basis of peace and the only basis of life in this world. So we're going to read scriptures to that effect that show the hopelessness of idolatry. And that show the great majestic wonder and glory and awesomeness that the true and living God, instead of us making images of him, he came down here and he took on human flesh. And he became born of a virgin as a little baby in a manger in order to give us life. And that's wonderful and that's awesome and that's majestic. So let me open us with a word of prayer and then we'll read our first two passages of Scripture. You can take your Bibles if you have them and join in as we come to these portions where we're going to read Scripture. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find one in the the red books in the pews in front of you, the chair racks in front of you, and feel free to follow along that way as we read. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for Christmas, how grateful we are for the reason for our celebration in the incarnation of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, that you are the high and holy God who has made us in your image, and that even though we all went astray from you like sheep after their own way, Father, you sent your only begotten Son, who is himself God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten but not made, And he is the maker of all things and the one for whom all things were made. And we praise you that he came willingly in order to be born, humbly, Father, laying aside all of the glories of heaven that he was worthy of and taking upon himself the form of man, taking upon himself flesh and blood in order that he might live and die and be raised and ascend and rule and reign in victory over our sin and over death and over eternal condemnation. And so, Father, as we contemplate the great mystery of God being born in the flesh tonight, would you fill us with wonder, would you fill us with awe, and would you fill us with great gratitude? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to the book of Habakkuk in your Old Testament, and we're going to look at a few verses in chapter 2, and then follow them up with the record of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Habakkuk is, again, condemning idolatry and exposing its foolishness, the foolishness of worshiping vain things and turning our backs on the living God. Habakkuk says, What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold, and there is no breath in it at all, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Matthew records the birth of Jesus this way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's stand together and let's sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel.
1: Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and Ransom captive.
0: as you take your seats, take your Bibles, and you can turn to Isaiah 9, and also keep a thumb in John chapter 1, and Mr. Grant Davis is going to come and read those scriptures for us, and follow along in your Bibles.
2: But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. So sorry, I think I might have gone to the wrong spot in my Bible. You got it? Oh OK, thank you. thank you.. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God.
0: And now you can turn to page two in your program, and you can remain seated as we sing together, Infant Holy, Infant Lowly.
3: If it
0: I can have Mr. Spencer Watkins come up and read for us from Luke's gospel, the record of Jesus' birth.
4: How close? Like here? Pretty close? close? Okay. (laughs) In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria.
0: Silent Night.
1: Voices. Christ the
3: Savior
1: is born. Christ the Savior is born. One
0: of my favorite. Advent and Christmas hymns of all time is this hymn that comes out of that verse that we read in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. We're going to sing it after PJ preaches on that passage, and before that, we're going to hear it played instrumentally here. So I welcome up Miss Elizabeth Neff and Mr. Jason Lee and Mrs. Wendy Watkins.
5: you have your Bible handy, you'll want to open it to Habakkuk chapter 2 once more. And with those kind of beautiful notes ringing in your mind and your heart, would you bow with me in prayer? Well, God, that music is majestic. And I think it reminds us of the fact that right now we're sitting in Your presence, Father. And nothing is lost on You. And the beauty of this night isn't lost on You. Despite what might be going on in our lives or in the world, this is a night to stop and remember something. Father, I want to offer a word of encouragement and exhortation to my brothers and sisters for just a brief few minutes. And so I pray for Your help to do that. I pray You'd help me to speak what's of You. I pray that You would help my family here to hear what is of you, and I pray that our hearts would be lifted up in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. That song that you heard played so beautifully, and that we are going to sing together in just a few minutes, is an ancient hymn, and its roots trace back to the 4th century or so, so the church has been singing this for millennia, and it goes under the English title let all mortal flesh keep silence. And as Steve already alluded to, those words, that title, which is also the opening line of the song, it evokes the statement of the prophet Habakkuk. From Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Now, I think those words kind of sound to us like Christmas words. They're reverent. They're majestic. They are peaceful. And indeed, I think Habakkuk's exhortation to us is just profoundly appropriate for a Christmas Eve, but it it might be even more appropriate and more important than we kind of realize up front. Because there's a context to this passage. And we read it. You've already heard it once this evening. And Steve has pointed us to it. The context is one in which this prophet of God is rebuking pagan sinners for their idolatry. Let me read that context to us one more time. Starting in verse 18 of Habakkuk chapter 2. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! Or to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now maybe as we read that context, this rebuke of idolatry feels a little bit strange for a Christmas Eve. Aren't we supposed to be thinking about silent nights and sort of quaint shepherds and cozy caves and even a baby who for some unbelievable reason, unlike every other baby ever born, doesn't cry when he's born? But listen, hymns like this, they survive through the centuries of the church, usually for a reason, and usually for a good reason. And I don't think it's any mistake that this hymn that we've associated with Christmas leads us to Habakkuk 2 as we contemplate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is nothing less than the moment when the divine Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on humanity, body and soul and became like us in every respect of what it means to be truly human. And I think if we abide with Habakkuk 2 for just a brief moment out of our Christmas celebration, this incarnation of Jesus Christ is going to shine with all the beauty and all the sweetness that makes it worth celebrating. It makes it worth literally an angel host An army of angels shouting, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace with those among those with whom He is pleased. That was that statement out of Luke 2. So let's think together for just a moment. What's an idol? An idol is something that we fashion and then we set up, whether it's tangible or intangible. Back in the day, maybe idols were more tangible. In our day, in our culture, they are less tangible. But nonetheless, it's something that we set up, we fashion, and we worship it instead of God, and we do it with clamoring words, as Habakkuk says. Maybe we fool ourselves into thinking that this idol somehow represents the one true God, but that's a lie, because nothing can represent God except God Himself. There is no representation for God. An idol is anything that isn't God, and yet receives our worship, the devotion, the praise, the glory that belongs to God and to God alone. That's what an idol is. Now ask the next question. Why in the world do we do this? Why why do we set up idols? Why do we build and fashion these false representations of God and then choose to worship them? You know why we do it? It's because we're trying to fix the sin problem of Genesis 3. If you know your Bible, you know that in Genesis 3, human creation rebelled against God, our Creator. And ever since that time, we've been trying to get back to the Genesis 1 and 2 world, that world in which we were whole and in which we had face-to-face fellowship with our Creator. We're trying to restore that world, but we're trying to do it on our own terms, in our own way. We're trying to deal with our rebellion against God on our own terms. In the Garden of Eden, we as human beings, in Adam and Eve, we are all joined with them. In Adam and Eve, we sought to usurp God. Meaning, we preferred God's, well, we preferred our own glory to the glory of God. We preferred to worship ourselves instead of God. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Romans 1. That was the beginning of our sin, and now we perpetuate that idolatry. We perpetuate our sin in idolatry. We're trying to fix our naked, shameful brokenness by creating a God on our own terms that we can worship in our own way. And then we get to Christmas Eve. And we come right up against the prophet Habakkuk. And he exposes the foolishness and the futility of our idolatry. And he does it By preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 2, verse 20 is a preparation statement for the coming of God's Messiah. Why? Why is it a preparation statement for the coming of God's Messiah? Well, because Jesus Christ is the great and the final answer to all our clamoring idolatry. He's the answer of judgment or of grace given to people who fashion speechless images, tangible or intangible. Jesus is the answer of either condemnation or mercy to people who would say to a wooden thing, awake, or to a stone, a silent stone, arise, or to another person, validate me. Or to a bank account, save me. Or to a sport, or a hobby, or a career, give me meaning. Think about it, right? In our idolatry, what do we do? We set up forms, things other than God, and we imbue those things with a false divinity. And in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, divinity itself takes on form. That's the exact opposite of idolatry. In idolatry, we try to make God like us, but in Jesus Christ, God became one of us. Jesus Christ is not our answer to the Genesis 3 problem of sin. Jesus Christ is God's answer sin. He's God's answer on God's terms, not our terms. Terms of mercy and grace for all who would receive Him as the Savior He is. Terms of judgment and wrath for all who would reject Him as the King that He is. If you were with Felton Bible Church this morning, we heard these words from the Apostle Paul. Speaking of Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? To deal with our idolatry. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every Name The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking humanity to Himself to die on a cross and rising from the dead in victory, all of that, this incarnation of Jesus, it means something for you and for me if we actually understand Christmas. It means that before Jesus, all of our idols must and will fall flat, because no idol can stand in the presence of God who took on flesh. Maybe you remember the account in 1 Samuel chapter 5 where we find the Ark of the Covenant, which is representative representative of God's presence with His people, this holy thing on which the mercy seat was, from which God would meet with His people Israel. And this Ark of the Covenant, it's in the custody of the Philistines, pagan enemies of the Israelites. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the house or the temple of Dagon one of their idols, one of their false gods. So you have the mercy seat of the one true God, the covenant God of Israel, placed alongside the idol of a false god, as if Yahweh, the one true God, was just another local deity to assimilate and then placate. That's the situation we find ourselves in. The Philistines put the ark next to Dagon's idol, and then then they go home for the night. When they return the next day, Dagon is lying face down on the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. So what do they do? Eh, Maybe he's an earthquake. So we'll just take Dagon and we put him back in his place. And then we leave again for the night. And the next morning they come again to Dagon's house. And what do they find? Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Well, that happened yesterday. Yeah, but this time the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This idolatrous false god was slain and then desecrated by the one true God of heaven and earth. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I are face to face with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is better than the ark. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the one true God of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. What does that mean? It means before Jesus, every idol, every Dagon-like idol in our lives must and will fall. Because this Savior will brook no equals. Now, people who know this are people who understand Christmas. And people who understand Christmas heed the words of the prophet The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. People like this keep silence, not by ceasing to speak but by ceasing to clamor. They cease saying to their idols, Awake! or Arise! People who understand Christmas and heed the words of the prophet are people who live with silence like Job's silence. Job who said to God, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you, God? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. O Lord, in all of my clamoring, in all of this idolatrous life that I'm so tempted to lead and to live, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now Lord, hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's the sort of silence we're talking about. People who understand Christmas practice the silence of worship and respond to words, in response to words like these from God be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So why do I need an idol? People who understand Christmas practice silence by opening their mouths and loudly proclaiming with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of Brothers and sisters, it's Christmas Eve, and the Lord is in His holy temple. The Son of God, Jesus our Lord, stands at the right hand of His Father in heaven, soon to return. So, let all the earth keep silence before Him. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. Amen to the
0: Word of God and to the holiness of our God, and to the miracle of his son's birth. Our musicians are going to come back up and lead us now in singing, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. So turn there in your programs.
1: the voices hallelujah
0: closing prayer before our closing hymn because the closing hymn is going to stand for itself. this is a tradition I think that we've carried on in this church for I don't know almost 20 years now where we close this service with Mr. Neff coming to sing oh holy night the verses for us and then we come in on the refrains and sing glory to our God and we'll let that be our our sort of doxology as we leave so, as they're preparing to come up for that hymn, let me, let me close us with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for the privilege that we have in this time and in this place of gathering together to worship you. And we're so thankful, Father, for your word by which you have revealed to us who you are and all of your holiness and what you have done for us and all of your graciousness to save us from our idolatry to deliver us from our sin, all of the ways that we have gone astray and done what was right in our own eyes, all of the ways in which we failed to love you and honor you as the Lord of glory who you are and submit ourselves to you, all of the ways in which we value other things and other people for our safety, our security, our pleasure, our meaning, rather than you who have made all things for your glory and who have created us in your image. And Father, while we set up these idols, you did something incredible. You sent your only begotten Son, and he took on the temple of human flesh. As John says in chapter 1, verse 14, which Grant read to us earlier, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that John uses is the word for tabernacle. In Jesus, you have pitched your tent among us and chosen to dwell as one of us in order to save us and give us life. Father, this gospel truth is too wondrous for us to fully comprehend. And so we simply give you praise and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing O Holy Night. As I said, Stan typically sings the verses, but I know that if you're like me, you can't hold yourself back, and that's okay. You're not forbidden from singing along on the verses. But when it comes to the refrain, Stan's going to bring us in and really, really let it go then. Amen? Let's sing.